Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Aid Evolved, and I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This season, we're speaking with donors and investors, driving new ways to deliver aid and improve lives in Africa. Today, we'll be sitting down with Margot Kuymans, head of Philips Foundation, as well as Philips Foundation Impact Investments Limited. For the younger people in our audience, a little backstory here. When I was growing up in the 1980s, Philips was very much a household name. Philips is a global technology company that was instrumental in the development of the audio cassette. They did everything from electric shavers to semiconductors. They even had a small stake in the popularization of personal computers. Over the years, they've become more focused in their work and spun out many of their other divisions like lighting and semiconductors and household electronics so that today they're mostly known for their work in healthcare technology. Philips today continues to be a leading brand in defibrillators, ultrasound machines, CT scans, and a host of other medical devices. So Philips is a particularly interesting actor in our exploration of the donor and investor landscape. There's this idea in development circles that the private sector can bring resources, money, expertise, and various other contributions that it's hard to get from the public sector. And you would think a global technology company like Philips would be a great example of this. They do so much to get cutting-edge medical devices into the best hospitals in the world. Surely they could also play a role in making diagnostic and health technology available in the most rural and underserved clinics in the world. That's where Philips Foundation and Philips Foundation Impact Investments Limited come in. As I mentioned, we're speaking today with Margot Koymans. She's an impact investor, a philanthropist, an entrepreneur, and an expert on corporate social responsibility. She's led Philips Foundation for almost all of their existence, and she was responsible for setting up the impact investing vehicle. Listen to this episode. If you're interested to hear how someone goes about channeling the energy, the resources, and the expertise of private corporations towards the public good. How does a global corporation think strategically of aligning its financial, in-kind, and staff support to its global strategy, both to maximize their social impact and also achieve the goals of the corporation itself? Put another way, if you're interested in the world of CSR, or corporate social responsibility. This episode is for you. Before we dive in today, I just wanted to take a quick minute to invite you. Yes, I'm talking to you. Invite you to be on this podcast. We're going to be introducing a new segment in a couple of weeks where we share stories about good money and bad money. Good money, funds that helped you get on the right track. Maybe that forced you to think critically about the impact you're having or made you take an unusual approach to the work that you're doing. Or bad money, funding you wouldn't take again. That was actually a lot of stress and hassle. Whatever it is, we want to hear from you. If you're willing to call an American number, you can leave us a voice note at 218-888-3678. Alternatively, you can also send us a recording or an email at podcast at aidevolved.com. Include your name, your organization, and if it's relevant to this audience, we'll air it on the show. 
Last public service announcement before we dive in for today. If you like what you're hearing on this show, follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, back to our show. Let me begin by telling you a bit about Margot Koymans before she joined Philips. Margot grew up in the south of Holland. She graduated with her master's in law in 1989 and started off her career as a corporate lawyer. But she's always drawn by the allure of entrepreneurship. So, after a few years, she started her own company, her first in the healthcare space. Multicare, as it was known, brought together the many pieces of what used to be the pretty fragmented space of health supplements. You know, things like vitamins. These were seminal years for Margot. These were the years that really taught her how to hustle, how to make ends meet, and what it was like to be your own boss, your own founder, your own entrepreneur. And in these years, she grew Multicare to be a major international enterprise. Fast forward to 1997. Things are going well with Multicare, but Margot found herself thirsty for something more meaningful, something more purpose-driven. It was 1997. Personal computers and the internet were just starting to take off. And for the first time, corporations were being held more accountable. Their actions were more visible to their consumers than they'd ever been before. Margot saw this trend, and she jumped in as the concept of corporate social responsibility really started to take off. And then I came across someone that was thinking about advising corporations in corporate social responsibility. Uh, still, the internet came, became bigger and bigger. So everybody had opinions about everybody, about corporations. They still do. They still do. <laughs> but that was just that. Before that, there were so many opportunities to Absolutely. So corporates ran into, and also smaller companies, ran into this idea that the whole society had an opinion about what they were doing. Also the good things, but also the bad things. So there was a demand for accountability and transparency about how money is used, uh, how people are treated, uh, what do you do in your supply chain, how, what about labor uh, rights and uh, conditions. Does your product do any harm, etc.? Is so environmental and societal justice or conditions, at least, eh? because it's not easy to solve everything, but to be aware of it, uh, the eff- effects of what you're doing as a company were becoming really critical. Always have been, but then there was no escape anymore. Yeah, and right? I love the linkage that you're drawing between that and the internet. Like, obviously, people have always wanted corporations to be ethical, but it wasn't until the dawn of the internet and being able to see those images of children making Nike shoes and things like that, where corporations really started to feel a certain degree of greater accountability to their consumers. And so the whole CSR movement was born and you were right in the thick of it when it came together. Absolutely. So what we did is set up a company called Good Company, because if if companies are Good company to society, they, hey, they try to, to add value instead of take mm-hmm. value. Good company uh, advised uh, listed companies as well as family businesses, smaller and bigger companies in the Netherlands about uh, corporate social responsibility. That was quite before the big, uh, now everybody's talking about ESG, but that was completely out of the picture. Mm-hmm. This was all. just at the birth of CSR, before it had been encoded, before impact investing existed. 
back in the day. True, true. So also about uh, reporting, eh? we, we uh, advise them about reporting, but not before the reality really changed. Eh? So first you have to act and then you can report on it, but not had uh, the greenwashing that you saw a lot. in. in Having spent all that time consulting for a variety of different corporates, big and small on CSR, anyone who's worked in that space knows it's a fine balancing act between the corporate profit motive and the, the CSR mission. Do you have any takeaways from that experience for other people running CSR programs? Like, how do you make a CSR program successful and aligned with the mission of the organization without, well, having real impact? Yeah, but first of all, it depends on the company you're in. Mm. It depends on your products. Mm. It depends on uh, on the people you affect, mm-hmm. right? The, the countries you're you're active in. Is it production or is it merely? IT, or is it? So it depends. First of all, you need to look at your specific effect. Right. You world. need to understand the business and the role that that business plays. You need to understand the business first of all, and then also have a vision on what do we want to be. Is it what do you want to add to society, or are you merely here to produce plastic bags or pens or whatever promotion materials, or what that doesn't really help the world any? <laughs> In the right direction, right? So, first of all, is our product adding value? If yes, what do we do? What is it? What are the conditions in the supply chain? Do we demand any effort from our suppliers? How about child labor? How about environmental effects of our fabric? Or So, depending on your core business, you need to look back into your supply chain. And also upstream, eh? is it benefiting the the end customer or are we silencing eh, something that should be out there in, uh, are we telling the truth? Are we ethical, et cetera, et cetera. So depending on your business, there's always a way to improve and to be more transparent, to be genuine in your efforts to to improve the world. Nice, I love that. It's both about the product and the mission, as well as how we get there. Like you can have, you need a high impact purpose or mission and you need to make sure that the way in which you generate or fulfill that mission is also ethical in its approach that you can't decouple the two well there was a step in between because the end of my time in a good company we were pioneering i have written several books i have uh, given hundreds of presentations to companies to in conferences etc so when the awareness grew about yes corporate social responsibility is something here uh, is here to stay there was also competition and my partners, I was with, with three partners and we had different opinions on the way forward. I said, we need to either specialize or go abroad or sell the company to a bigger, to one of the bigger. And we, well, I said, well, buy me out then. We had different ideas. That's fine. So I, I sold my share. After Margot left, good company. She took the funds from the sale of her shares, as well as the other companies she'd already exited, and moved into real estate. In a way, this was a chance for her to get more exposure to the investment space, as she's working with major pension funds on their real estate allocation. But she continued with her focus on social responsibility, and spent a ton of energy driving for more sustainable, green, and community-friendly real estate development. This would occupy her time for the next 10 years, between 2007 in 2016. Then, in 2016, a friend approached her with an offer she couldn't refuse. 
a role at the head of the prestigious Phillips Foundation. And this was in the years surrounding a key shift in the strategy of Phillips. When Phillips was emerging from a reshuffle as primarily focused on healthcare technology. And it was Margot's job to see how can we take the global strategy of what Philips Corporation is seeking to do in the healthcare space and channel its philanthropic resources, its funds, its in-kind contributions, and its human capital towards social impact in a way that aligns with everything else this giant corporation is trying to achieve. To society. That is my main interest. So a friend of mine came with this a vacancy in Philips and director of Philips Foundation was, uh, yeah, sought or, or it went away. And they, he said, Maho, this is exactly in the, in the heart of what you were interested in. Philips as a company has always had my, uh, won my heart. I, like I said, I was raised in the south of Holland, uh, close to uh, Eindhoven, where, where Philips started. Everybody in my environment had <laughs> someone working in Philips. It made the most wonderful products. Everybody knew the company and it had this DNA of taking care of society nice. as well. And how that established was, really was the foundation when you joined and like the, the impact investment? Like what was the lay of the land when you joined? What was the job that you, you thought you were signing up for, which isn't always the same as the job that you get? <laughs> yeah. Right. True. It was established in 2014. And I came okay. in so in December of 2016. Jelly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was established to be the, let's say, central platform for the CSR activities of, of the company worldwide. Because every market, Philips always has done so much in and for society that she doesn't even talk about. But it had been, with the grow, growth of the company and being, becoming a global uh, player, in every country, there were societal activities and non-commercial activities that the company um, wow. So you had a lot of work executed and supported. Well, no, that was before I came in, but but the moment that the, the foundation was established, that was actually the reason. It had become a patchwork of of differing activities all over the world, and a lot of money was involved there as well. As someone said, my current chairman of the board was one of the people that said, well, we need to organize this differently. Let's centralize all of those activities in one platform, being the, uh, becoming the, the FIPS Foundation, where also uh, the money can be centralized so that we can make more impact and we report on the impact we really make. Because does it really make sense to support the local uh, cyclists round or the, the marathon or, and that's still done and that's outside of my view? But the, you can imagine how many requests come to a company eh, like Philips on a daily basis. So that is now that was centralized in 2014. And so when I came in, it was mainly a donating platform for you, like donate, people would donate to you, or you would donate society. to other charitable organizations. We had to, so the foundation would donate to NGOs, local organizations, uh, all kinds of. Organization that needed support. Eh? And, and how was it structured just for context? Right? Was it like a, an independent fund? Was it linked to the larger corporation? Like what kind of autonomy did you have at that time? It's an entity independent, well, not, in, not entirely, in, but liaised to the company Philips, of course. But it's not 
in Philips. So it's a separate legal entity from the company. So the Philips Foundation also has an official not-for-profit label. It's called in Dutch. It means that we cannot pursue any private interest. So this means that we really need to put impact first and uh, and look at what yeah well uh, efficient use of funds. Uh, Philips is the main contributor to Philips Foundation. And when I looked back at the two years before my time, eh, when I came in at the foundation, I saw that there were partnership agreements with UNICEF oh, and uh, not the shabby. International Committee of the Red Cross. Great organizations. No, not too shabby. A really good organization, hardworking organization with a lot of impact. But when I said, well, I see how much money went to uh, these organizations, but what is the true impact mm. that we have been able to make uh, uh, together? And they couldn't report back. They really couldn't say. So that's when I said we need to focus the strategy much more on. Uh, and, and in the meantime, uh, Philips was also uh, focusing on healthcare only, uh, healthcare as a, a core business. Instead of uh, vacuum cleaners, televisions, radios, light, uh, lighting was just uh, divested at that point. So I readjusted the strategy and focused fully on healthcare. But then how does it relate to the company? Well, where, where Philips as a healthcare technology company plays in the field of uh, mainly mm-hmm. hospital care uh, and qualitative care in clinics and hospitals. Philips Foundation should play a role where people cannot afford quality healthcare, where hospitals are not available always, where primary healthcare is not even available. So that's how we relate to the company. We don't play where the company plays on a commercial basis. We try to find ways to create access to quality healthcare for the underserved, for people that really have no access or very limited access to medical services. Which is not not right. Eh? Half of the world's population still is in in is deprived of good medical care, and when they do have a condition or a severe bleeding or an accident or a tumor that c- goes out of control, then they go to the hospital and it makes so, them. Just to, just to make sure I'm capturing what you're often. talking about, it sounded like when you first joined, it was it was non-strategic. It was like we're going to give donations to UNICEF because they have a great brand, a great reputation but maybe it wasn't directly linked to Philips and like, what is Philips' mission? And this even goes back to what you're saying about CSR and how to be most effective with CSR. You knew that Philips was focused on healthcare right. and you knew that in the corporate side, it was only going to get so far. So you created a strategy and aligned the work of the foundation around extending the reach and the impact of Philips beyond where the corporate side was focused, but complementing the expertise and the staffing and the intelligence that you have from that corporate side so that the overall impact you can have is not, it's not just about your financial contribution, but it's also about your, your role in the market, the kinds of products and services that, that you bring to the industry. Did I get that right? Perfectly phrased. Perfect. That's a, a great understanding because money is only, we are always running in the business, but for the social part, for the access to care part that we are responsible uh, for, we don't have too much money (laughs) to spend, but we have a lot of brain and capacity in the company and volunteers that have expertise that is specific in that field of healthcare. 
So that is more importantly what the company has to offer indeed, or the Philips Foundation has to offer as opposed to any other corporate foundation who has another... That makes sense. Uh, Are you at liberty to share what into. the endowment was for the Phyllis Foundation? Around 7 million annually. And that has never been questioned. That has never been questioned by the company. Should we do less? Should we... It's, so it's not a part of the profit, but it's a fixed amount, actually. Yeah. And I want to do more with that same amount every year. So we put a bold ambition to it. We need to, to have reached or to have created access to quality healthcare, so new services for people that are underserved to 100 million people by 2030. And we will uh, exceed that easily, if you ask me, because it's also not only thinking in terms of donating and then uh, knowing what happens on the other side in terms of impact. But it's also thinking deeply about how can we make our impact last instead of eh, when the donation is consumed, then people are in the same bad condition as they were before we came in. That doesn't make sense to me. So I started thinking about how can we make our impact sustainable in every area we work, in every country, every underserved area we, we put our eyes on, we want to create something lasting without doing harm, not pushing medicine, not pushing. So it's not about that. It's really, truly about understanding the local context, understanding how technologies of the company, the company has a lot of early detection devices, technology that can really easily in an early stage see whether there's a heart condition or a respiratory condition or a a tumor, maybe, or during pregnancy, yeah? is there any risk? Is it all good yeah, that we see? Or is the echo or the ultrasound uh, telling us differently? And so in an early mm-hmm. stage, the more you know in an early stage, the yeah. better off the patient will be. Yeah? The, the timely referral is often life-saving, meaning that we want to deploy these kind of technologies. And if we don't have the right technology to do so, we started to collaborate with social entrepreneurs that have super interesting, and you know about that, super interesting the Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Did you pioneer the impact ventures part of Philips Foundation? You created that mechanism? Yes. Is yes. that your baby? Would you describe it as your baby? Right. You made this, Absolutely. it wouldn't happen if you weren't at the helm, basically. So, no, it wouldn't have happened. I don't think so. And, the company is, is happy with it. So it's not that I tried something completely opposite to only diligence parting that came with it. We set up an, an investment committee. We have uh, has procedures to get investments approved, of course. So the whole setup was done yeah, in my instigation. But it's, it's still something that is not around. I feel quite lonely in the market landscape, I must say, because there are a lot of impact investors around, but they will invest like the traditional investors when the risk is hardly seen anymore or had the company has proven itself for three, four, five, six years, and then it's growing and then the risks are gone or the technology has proven itself. And it's not difficult for the entrepreneurs to find money when they're in that stage. But before they get there and in between, they are too proud and also not fit to 
to ask for donations. And they will not be granted any, and most of them will not be granted uh, donations. But so they're in between the impact investment landscape and donations. So that is exactly the gap that we want to cover, and knowing that is it's high risk, it can fail. And the way we try to mitigate that risk is to stay involved. That's also why we do not invest in funds as one of the investors in funds, but we always invest directly. And so meaning that we know the entrepreneur, that we really know what kind of business they're in, the context we want to understand the ecosystem is operational staff, medically trained staff available? If not, can we set up telehealth? What is the uh, the level of understanding of digital technologies locally? Sometimes we've also seen that even though you want digital technologies to be in the hands of the community health worker or the midwife or the, uh, the, the primary care center, sometimes it, worked, it even works better in a certain context to have paper cards to tell, had to tell the story or to prevent people from becoming ill, to change lifestyles, to make them aware of certain circumstances during pregnancies that really had, must lead to... Absolutely. To Technology has its place. And, it's, and sometimes it has its place and sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> there are clear cases where like just digitizing, Absolutely. it's not a means and an end in and of itself. Oh, one remark, and what I truly see is that it helps for me to have been an entrepreneur. Three times I set up an own company and I know the struggle and I know nobody believes you and you can come back when you prove you don't need us anymore, actually. And so I've been there several times. I know the struggle. And that's the language that I share with the entrepreneurs and they give back to me, to us. We do this with a team, of course. That we are, that it's rare to find a party that really understands the entrepreneur and their struggles uh, with an agile and support them with an agility that they need, uh, but kind of hardly find in a market because they have to wait a talk for a year and a half to find a bank that wants to support or, or uh, impact investors say, well, yeah, yeah, it's super interesting, nice technology, but come back later when you have overcome this and that. That's exactly the point. That's the moment where you need where you need money yeah, to scale or to improve your technology or to to hire that salesperson or to, and that's that's uh, the typical circle. They hardly get out. If we yeah, don't I hear what you're saying, and I hear exactly your point about feeling lonely in this space. Like, there's one thing about providing capital to, to support innovation, to make change, to make a positive impact, and then there's another thing about being tolerant of risk, and the two don't necessarily come hand in hand. In fact, they often, usually they come quite far apart because the people with the most capital are the least risk-taking, as it were. And entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, innovators, they need both. They need the capital and they need the appetite for risk, which it takes a very unique kind of venture to provide. And I hope we can get some more of them. I hope we can create a, a role model for more organizations to follow it in your footsteps, Margot. Is there one success story Absolutely. that you want to talk about? Maybe an investment that you've made or a person that you've worked with or some grant that the foundation has given that you just want to celebrate with the world? Yeah, well, it's an investment in a chain of clinics in Kenya. Bumping, and the entrepreneur was bumping into challenges related to oh, the government, man. obstacles. That's tough. Uh, There's only one government. So, you got to yeah, work with them. Right? Hopefully in a country. <laughs> 
and self-interest of uh, government officials. Sometimes you, you yeah, in every country, things you, you cannot even imagine. Absolutely, every country. So how do you overcome? We had uh, granted them a loan, and they should have started repayments already, but they just couldn't because their forecast was limit. They could not realize their forecast because of these limitations, and there was severe obstruction, let's say, by by the government. Well, either need to trust the entrepreneur, and not just naively, but you need to keep in touch. And also grant them a little bit of breathing space, which was not of, well, my board was not pleased, of course, eh, because they are of a, eh, they are at bigger distance of the entrepreneur and of the team and of the, the challenges they face. And that is also the way it should be. But I had to really convince them they will come back. They will overcome. And not just a naive belief but also mainly because of everything that was said about it, the steps they had taken, the agility towards eh, other parts of the business that grew all of a sudden eh, by by more focus. So, And then your conviction grows that the entrepreneur will overcome these obstacles, which they are showing now. And I think that is also, that, that might be an example where I say, well, it's about the people. It's not about the, the technology. It's not about the process. It's not about the matrix. It's not about the Excel sheets. And the, well, it's about the human side that is most convincing to me. They have to, to have stamina and they Absolutely. have to have Mario, oh, can I just say, the courage if I were on. a founder, you sound like an amazing investor to work with. Like you've been in the entrepreneur shoes, you understand the hustle, you know, sometimes with the best laid plans in the world, the governments or, you know, I don't know, like, you know, hurricane, you know, like things happen. And it sounds like you have that, that support, that ability to champion your portfolio, which is amazing. I think we need more, more investors like you in the space. Margot, just before we switch over to our rapid Thank fire you, questions, Olivia. anything else you wanted to add? Yeah, as long as, and well, of course, uh, overall, to me, it's very important to have fun during work. I don't see my work as work. And I also love empowering the team and uh, inspiring people around me. And that is what makes me tick. And if I'm forced to work into structures that are not mine, eh, that I don't, do not feel, then, then that it's makes not so much sense. It's amazing. To work in, the world is so. full of so much sadness. Sometimes you just need some laughter, <laughs> some joy to make True. it all worthwhile because this is it's a, it's a hard business that we're in. Yeah, all right, Jerry. Marco, here we go. We're going to switch over to our rapid fire questions. Just a list of questions here, short answers, you know, two or three sentence each. First question for you is on pitching. Thinking back on the past couple of investments you've made uh, through the, the impact vehicle that you have or the investment vehicle that you've had, what's one thing that won you over to actually writing a check to a specific company? Yeah, we touched upon it. It's the spirit of the entrepreneur, actually. And not just being an enthusiastic uh, person. But next to a clear business case, of course, uh, motivated to address a need, savvy about what it takes to tackle it, a never-ending stamina, a nice and open person also with a heart uh, in the right place, open to learning as well, eh? so no know-it-alls, and knowing his or her flaws, uh, inviting expertise and uh, capable of leading a motivated team uh, and motivate team. Nice. Uh, 
On the aid front, what guidance would you give to traditional aid, philanthropists, or impact funds to better support innovation for healthcare in Africa? When talking about the underserved areas, above all, stop thinking in pilots and projects. You see many NGOs piloting after a pilot. I think in terms of long and lasting system change, we talked about it prior to these uh, these questions, and stay involved in the local ecosystem. So we must see the local population's benefits from it. Eh? So, And to investors, I would say, for impact against healthcare inequality, you need to think outside of the traditions of investing. Yeah, this is a different sure. ballgame. You will have to be willing to take risks, also to deeply understand the local ecosystem and the and the technology in place in the healthcare space. It also entails understanding whether medical staff is off, is available, a training or telehealth solutions, etc. So it's it's the whole subset of factors that you need to understand to uh, in order to that know makes a lot of sense, where Marco. I want to invest. Advice: If you could take a step back in time, what advice mm-hmm. would you give your younger self? Huh. Uh, that would be trust your intuition. You know more than they nice. will make you believe. I love it. <laughs> that, that's actually it. You, you know, and you might also feel it maybe as a, as a woman. Is that I don't know whether that is the, the differentiator, but we are taught to argument everything, eh? to rationalize everything. But I know that when I listen to my Would you like to offer a kudos or a shout out to someone writer. who has inspired or guided your work? Yes, uh, Ronald de Jong. He is the chairman of my board. Actually, he is also a former EXCO eh, executive committee member of Philips. And he is also a distinguished professor of practice at Tilburg University, always into uh, leadership, teaching future leadership. So what does it take to become a leader that can lead the world to a better place, actually? So he's really involved in what he's doing. He's aware that he was educated or raised within the traditional custom, uh, 30 years in a corporate environment of Philips. He acknowledges, considering the fastly and changing world we are in and its deplorable status, that the ways of working of the past might not be the way forward. And his openness and courage to let go of his certainties or his old beliefs to empower people to act in their own unique, that sounds amazing. Mutual, wow. Uh, this last question is action. just for fun. Can you recommend a book, a blog, or a podcast that you've enjoyed recently in your personal time? What inspires me to do some actually, he and then and, and, and especially two documentaries that I saw he made. One is called A Life on Our Planet. Witnessing 70 years, his 70 years of exploring nature and uh, witnessing the natural loss he sees, eh? comparing 70 years prior to now. Margot, so for listeners who want to learn more about yeah. you or about your work, the Phillips Foundation, what's the best place to stay up to date on what's going on? Well, we have a website that we try to keep very actual and uh, up to date. And maybe my LinkedIn page, something. Yeah, that's perfect. We'll link to it in our show notes. Thank you so much for your time today, Margot. We really appreciate it. 
if you'd like to learn more about Phillips Foundation, you can check out their website at phillips-foundation.com. And you can see examples of what Margot was talking about, how Phillips Foundation extends the reach and impact of the Phillips Corporation. For example, through their work with technology and community health, they're providing point-of-care ultrasound. And what's neat about that is that not only is point-of-care ultrasound in and of itself a life-saving intervention, it means they can also leverage the expertise of the Philips Corporation in precision diagnostics and image-guided therapies. Inside a Philips Foundation is the Impact Investment Vehicle, where they've made investments in organizations such as Solvaz, which is digitizing and streamlining the humanitarian supply chain, as well as Healthy Entrepreneurs, an organization which is developing a new cadre of financially sustainable community health workers who not only provide counseling in remote communities, but also sell products that can contribute towards a healthy living and a healthy livelihood. If you'd like to learn more about Phillips Foundation or its investees, check out our show notes at aidevolved.com. And if you like what you heard today, connect with us on LinkedIn or Twitter, also at Aid Evolved. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you in a few weeks when we speak with Kurt LaBelle of the Global Health Investment Fund, a $100 million impact investment vehicle financed by the Gates Foundation. I'll see you then.